The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. If you've ever experienced an injury or suffered from pain, an approach you may not have heard of or tried is the Feldenkrais method. Developed in the mid-20th century by Israeli physicist Moshe Feldenkrais, the technique involves becoming aware of how one's body interacts with its surroundings and relinquishing habitual movement patterns that cause or contribute to chronic pain. I'm joined today by Sandy Goldring, a longtime practitioner of the Feldenkrais method. Sandy specializes in helping people who are limited by pain, injury, and disability get back to their active lives. Sandy believes that no matter what's going wrong with your physical performance, you can learn how to move better and more comfortably so that you can function optimally. In his clinic and online classes, Sandy uses the Feldenkrais method as a non-medical, integrative approach to helping people bounce back from injury and feel well. Many of his clients have already tried everything else without the success they ultimately find with Feldenkrais. After working as a massage therapist in a physical therapy clinic, Sandy went on to earn a master's degree in physical therapy from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. While in PT school, he discovered the full healing potential of Feldenkrais, first by getting help with his own injury and subsequently observing a stroke patient's astonishing improvement. By the time he graduated, he had already been accepted in a four-year professional Feldenkrais training. Over the past 25 years, Sandy has worked across all age groups with many different conditions that interfere with living fully. He is devoted not only to showing people how to recover from disability and injury, but also how to prevent the same problems from recurring. In 2005, he found he founded Advanced Movement Training, located in Sandy Springs, Georgia, where he helps people make rapid, lasting changes and achieve their full potential. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, Feldenkrais Method, I think a lot of people are not going to be familiar with it, but there's a lot of data, and it's really been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Can you first tell us what is it? The Feldenkrais Method is a comprehensive approach to learning how to move well. And I'm going to emphasize the word learning there. It's not a healthcare modality. It doesn't consist of things that the, the, the authority, the practitioner does to you, like a therapist will do things to you. It's more creating conditions whereby you really explore how you are functioning honing your own kinesthetic sense and your sense of how you interact with your environment. Ultimately, the goal is to be able to optimize the way you have an intention and you manifest that in action. There are a lot of times, like people have trouble, they feel like they don't have talent, so you don't have to be sick to do Feldenkrais. You, maybe you just want a better golf swing, and it doesn't even matter what your golf teacher has told you. You can't do it. And it's not a question of talent. It's a question of accidental and habitual self-limitation, which everybody in this culture learns really well. That is the wheelhouse of Feldenkrais. We help you get out of your own way, 
Frequently, that means getting out of pain. It can mean recovering from a bad injury, like a stroke. And it can be something as simple as improving athletic performance or just learning how to go up and down the basement stairs with your laundry basket without hurting. So it's really appropriate for a lot of different conditions, a lot of different age groups. Mm -hmm. Let's walk through an example to try and take what you've just said to, you know, in terms of how it's applied to a specific patient and how you've worked with them. So let's, you know, maybe you could just pick a particular patient who you've seen for pain, for injury, and how the evaluation you do through Feldenkrais is different from, say, the type of evaluation they may get if they go to a physician or a physical therapist. Okay. So I will, um, I'll go with my current favorite. And this is a man who was sent to me by his, uh, by his enlightened orthopedic surgeon. This man was having trouble walking after his knee replacements. And, um, and he'd gone through the rehab and he had done all the work. And the, the orthopedic outcome was fine and the functional outcome was very difficult. And he asked his surgeon, so I just wish there was a way I could learn how to walk again without actually having to walk because walking really hurts right now. And the physician said, yeah, you need to go see this guy. He does Feldenkrais. <laughs> so um, I have worked with this man, and uh, he feels great. He goes away for a few years. He comes back. And so this time he came back, and he was really almost bent over. It was, it was, uh, he was really hobbling. He had terrible back pain. Both of his knees were bothering him. And he walks in, and he says – I wrote down a list of all the things I want to do but I can't do anymore. And top of the list is walking. I just miss walking for exercise, for pleasure, for fun. I can't do stairs anymore. Really hard to live life. So this is a man that I have worked with privately. And the private lessons, there's, there's always jargon, right? So the, the private lessons are called functional integration. And um, – the group lessons are called awareness through movement. They're two sides of the same coin. But what I've done with this man is actually help him feel the things that I observe. So, you know, so a Feldenkrais assessment, um, some things will jump out at you immediately. You watch somebody walking the way he's walking. So clearly he's going to be putting most of his weight on one side because he's bent over and twisted and hobbling. Uh, he's going to do things in a way that avoid back pain as much as possible. And um, the, so, so without going into the actual specifics, because the specifics unfold, it's also very interesting that when you interact with a system, as soon as you interact with it, the system's behavior changes. So you, you certainly have more than one lesson. You don't expect a miracle. But um, and, and it's actually difficult to describe, you know, like, oh, I put my hands here and I did this manipulation. That that's not how it works. You know, you put your hands here and you move something so that the person feels something about how it might be possible to move differently or more comfortably. How do you, how do you learn how to walk without walking? Well, you lie down. Once you're out of gravity, then you can work with the limbs in a, 
in an easier way, the person can feel more than if they're busy using their limbs trying not to fall down. So, um, but certainly at the end of the summer, um, we parted company uh, for a couple of months. He wants to come back and improve more, but he called me up. He said, I'm doing everything I want to do. He says, the, the improvement has been remarkable. And even though he still was limping when he left my office, at least he was limping. He wasn't hobbling. He was walking. And I gave him a few tricks that he might try out, and apparently they worked for him. This is very different from a physical therapy assessment. Um, first of all, probably PT is going to be submitted to insurance. Insurance loves numbers. You're going to sit down with a goniometer. You're going to get all the joint ranges. Um, you might take a look at things that are inflamed. And if it comes to walking, then you're probably going to look at the whole picture from the waist down. And if it's a back pain, then you're going to look at it from the waist up. And smack dab in the middle of both of those are the hips. And you only look at a hip if the hip has a lesion. So it's medically driven. PT patients arrive with diagnoses. And diagnoses imply protocols. And more and more these days, only evidence-based protocols. So if something doesn't work, then what? Because you may have your billing denied. So PT is an entirely other conceptual framework. And you do these things. And if you're smart, you, you give the patient things to do so that you don't even have to pay attention to them, so that you can increase your volume while you're paying attention to somebody else while first person is on a treadmill or something like that. Feldenkrais is one-to-one. -one. Um, you are, you're there with that person trying to, trying to feel how they might be feeling things, trying to understand what it is they need to experience in order to make a new connection. And it's kinesthetic, which means that it's really hard to have English vocabulary. Um, so, I mean, you can, just, you can say blue. Blue can mean a, a lot of things. <laughs> and then is there a vocabulary at all for what it feels like to move one way or the other way? The, the, the vocabulary we like to use is, is it effortless? What's hard? What's easy? We build on what's easy, which means we play to a person's strengths. We don't necessarily try to bring them back to some sort of textbook normal. We try to get them feeling well within the context of their own framework, the context of their own injuries, their, their life history, everything that has modeled their musculoskeletal and nervous systems to be what they are at the time. And then how do you optimize function within those constraints? So if you know, a person comes in, and I know it's obviously hard to describe the maneuvers and the specifics, but the upshot, from what I'm understanding, is you are increasing awareness to different ways we use certain muscles, have our posture, et cetera, that we have reinforced that are making our bodies use energy in a way that is not very efficient, and you're increasing awareness of showing people perhaps how they can use different muscles and then retraining how they can move more effortlessly by finding the positions that come more naturally and simpler. Is, is that the general that principle? Is, well, uh, the general principle is I, it needs to be broken down, right? Okay. So you take these lessons. Yeah, if you just come and you say, well, here's the, here's the end game, and you just start shooting for the end game, it, it doesn't work all that well. 
Some of the more basic principles are at any given time, whether you're injured or not, um, you're probably limiting yourself unnecessarily. You don't even know you're doing it because it's it's you. It's what you've gotten used to. It's and and so once you actually can feel, and it's again, it's a feeling thing, how to get out of your own way. When you feel the things you're doing to make life harder, just the discovery of it, um, you can stop. And so once you have a little success, you can then do something else. And then over time, uh, you can really build up huge changes. You don't necessarily need to use different muscles or different patterns. You need to feel how you're limiting yourself. I can take you through a one-minute example right now if, you, if you're interested and the people who are listening can do this with you. So would you like to try this? Oh, sure. We can certainly try it. Okay. So very simply um, – We'll just say, so first of all, don't do this if you have a neck injury or you can't turn to the right. And if you can only turn to the left, then use the left. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say right. So very simply, and don't worry about making eye contact with me. Your eyes belong to you right now. And if you turn your head as though to look over your right shoulder and you turn slowly and then come back to the middle, and you'll find that at some point, keep doing that. So go slowly enough so that you can really feel and, – and don't stay at the end. So you go to the right and you come back. If you go slowly enough, you'll see that there's some point – keep going. You do this a few times. So Feldenkrais um, lessons really have a lot of repetition. This is more of an awareness through movement form. You'll see that you move effortlessly through some part of the range. Then you begin to tighten up and then you stop and then you come back. So the next time you go – Take a visual reference so that you'll know. Okay, you look at something on the wall. You say, okay, this is how far I turned. Now you come back to the middle. Keep your head where it is and only look to the right with your eyes. So you take the eyes to the right and back to the middle. So the eyes go to the corners towards the right and back to the middle. And go slowly enough here so that you can do this just five, six times. And then let the eyes and the head work together again and turn as though you're going to look over your right shoulder and see where the effortlessness is now. Do you go farther? Is it easier to turn? Yeah, I think it is. And then come back. And if you really want to appreciate the difference you just made, try turning once to the left and really compare the difference between the sides, right? So there's, a, there's a, almost always a marked difference. So you can sit down and say, okay, well, so I played with my head. I played with my eyes. I didn't really do anything I don't know. So, you know, so how did it happen? A lot of people say magic. <laughs> and I don't even think that, I mean, I can explain it and it's physiologically interesting. But what's really more to the point, the interesting question here is clearly you can turn as far as you did. Why didn't you do that in the first place? And the answer is habit. And this is – so this is all kinesthetic. There was nothing intellectual here. You just turn farther by differentiating the movement of your eyes and your neck. And there are reflexes in the brain stem that make sure everything stays all hooked up. But, so this is how – this is the sense of kinesthetic awareness, 
right? And then once you learn how to go that far and then we can build that on other experiments with work with the neck and the eyes and then we can get that hooked into the torso and all of a sudden you can go the full 180 left to right with the same degree of effortlessness that you made your first move within that boundary, which was in all likelihood an artifice. So this works with injury the same way. Um, there are different kinds of injury. Um, there are injuries, especially traumatic ones, which leave you scared to do something that you did to get there in the first place. People who fall down have this a lot. You know, people who fall generally fall more than once and then they are afraid to walk and they touch everything in their path. Um, and uh, or they may, they may be at the point where they actually have trouble getting out of a chair because they're actually afraid to get on their feet. People who have been in pain before, let's say, a knee replacement but put up with 20 years of pain have really learned some interesting ways to get around and avoid pain. So the pain behaviors become their own habit. And then you go and you make a repair and lo and behold, the person doesn't get better. And I mean you can even rehab the joint but the person is still feeling limited. These kinds of things, if you can get a person confident in the way they feel in their body, if they can have pleasure in movement instead of pain, they stop anticipating the pain, they begin to move better and the more confident they get in their, in their body, the, the more confidence they have, the more safety they feel. If they feel safe, they stop being afraid. So there are broad psychological implications to simply being able to do something well. You know, when you have someone come to you, say, who's falling, do you find from your work that a lot of the limitation in their ability to, you know, get the confidence and the joy in movement to be physical or to be from habitual patterns uh, that they're not aware of? That really depends. Okay, so there are certainly balance issues which are uh, – which need medical attention for sure. You know, there are, there are conditions like Meniere's disease that will produce vertigo. There are uh, vestibulo-ocular reflex strangenesses where the eyes are doing really funny things and misinforms the brain or the, the ears, the, the inner ear is, is kind of out of calibration. And so there, there are honest, there, if, if it's vestibulo-ocular and it's just age-related and things have gotten out of sync, there are exercises and they're not Feldenkrais. They're plain old PT. You know, here's this exercise. Do this. I'll supervise you. We'll progress and you'll resync and you'll get your balance better, right? So that, that can be done. Um, you can do it with Feldenkrais. Sometimes I use a blend. Um, but if it's just really not diagnosed, where a person, uh, for whatever the reason, they, they had a fall and maybe they fell in the bathroom and you know, broke their neck, and I'm, I'm working with somebody like that now. So, She's just – you can see it. She gets up and she starts to tremble and then you think, well, does she have a tremor? And No, she doesn't. She's just – she's scared. <laughs> That's the long and the short of it. So how do I work with that in Feldenkrais? Well, 
baby steps, right? So we'll have one lesson maybe just around what does it feel like to sense weight in your feet? What, is it, what do your feet feel when you put pressure on them? Okay, well, now that you know what your feet feel, if we sit you up and we put your feet on the floor and we take you from behind your feet, if we just rock you forwards and backwards, can you feel that transition of weight from the back of your foot to the front of your foot? And so you get a person comfortable and they're perfectly safe. You're not even trying to stand them up, so there's no chance of falling down. They're just rocking in a way that they feel weight shifting. And then they stand up, and lo and behold, they're smoother, and they feel happier, and they're more in touch with the ground. Um, and so from that, you know, and you stand them up only because they have to get back to their car and drive home, and then they hold on to you for dear life, and you escort them out to their car. <laughs> But their feet are working better. And then you can build that up from the ground up. And eventually you can begin to do things where the person feels, well, how does the weight travel through their spine? You know, what do they feel in their hips? And people magically stop slouching once they realize that they're lighter on their feet if they just put their head in a different place. They don't think about posture. They think about lightness and they go for it because it feels good. And it's fun to be that way. To get to a point where a person, for example, you know, senses their feet better to get better balance or um, reduces their pain through maybe carrying their head differently, are these things that a person has to work with a Feldenkrais instructor? Are there things that a person can do at home to just catch themselves doing things that maybe are overutilizing muscles or becoming habitual and working against them? Um, I have a blended answer to that. I mean, the, the obvious answer is yes. Uh, anybody can find it within themselves to become more aware. Certainly, you can use yoga that way. In fact, that's kind of my idea of yoga, which means union. So it, it shouldn't just be a plain old stretch class. Um, but so, so there are ways to explore yourself. There are ways, and people who learn musical instruments do this all the time. They come up on a, a really fast, hard passage. And then what do they do? Well, they break it down and they slow it down. And, you know, if there are bumps, I had a piano teacher once who used to write NB in my music. And what that stood for was no bumps. <laughs> and, you know, so you come up near the bump and then you slow down and then you you get to the and, and suddenly you can feel where the bump is coming. Oh, I held my breath. Oh, I'm clenching this. You know, you can get rid of the bump. So so really, yeah, instrument players do this. They have to if they're going to get good. And by going really slowly and smoothing things out and feeling the sense of control and building in relaxation, all of a sudden they can whip off these high-velocity things, you know, virtuoso performances, but they sure don't start there. Um, athletic excellence is the same, all right? So can you explore it? Yes. What I like to do in my clinic is work with people and then give them take-home material. Not a protocol. It's like in PT, here, here's your home exercise program. You go home, you do this. It's how many sets, how many reps, how many times a day, how many seconds do you hold a stretch, whatever, you know, how many pounds. 
Um, I give them what I call memory joggers. Occasionally, I will give them what I call recipes. But even there, the recipes, you know, step one, step two. But it's meant to lead them into recreating the experiences they had in the clinic, which spelled success for them. And um, so they're just they're just take home. Uh, like like self-talking points. And this is the thing. Um, Feldenkrais himself coined the term, my, what I really do here, the process is called learning to learn. Right? So after you go through enough of these sorts of experiences, you do begin to get the hang of when you have a problem, really beginning to sense in and slow down and feel what's what. And, you know, if you've been doing enough Feldenkrais or – if you can still operate the, the way you did when you were one and two years old, you can get curious and find alternatives. Um, so I use Feldenkrais as an entree into self-monitoring, self-actualization, and pretty much no matter – with very few exceptions, at some point, everybody needs a teacher. Everybody needs a guide. And so people come back and then they – do well, and then they come back, and then you know maybe they don't come back. Maybe they figured it out. Maybe they go off and take a Feldenkrais training, and now they now they do know how to do it. But it only took another four years. So, yeah, I I send people home. Um, I don't even call it homework. I call it home play. It should be playful, easy exploration. There are no Feldenkrais protocols or home maintenance programs. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. And to build the awareness and have people reinforce, like you were saying, you're helping the lady who was helping, you know, just rocking with her feet to sense the ground. Mm -hmm. How many sessions over what amount of time is a typical course of treatment where a person learns to learn? Like how, how – is it a lengthy process? Is it something that – I'm sure it's variable, but it's, what's typical? It's incredibly variable because it depends on what kind of a learner the person is. Um, so, I mean, my one of my favorite success stories was I had a 12-year-old kid with cerebral palsy who comes limping in with his hand in the air. And I said, why are you here? And he says, I am tired of not being able to ride a bike. Every time I pedal, I fall. And we worked three consecutive Monday afternoons for a total of two calendar weeks and he was out on his mountain bike after 12 years of or how it, he probably started trying when he was five or six many years of failure and he figures it out and you know what I didn't tell him was that all, all we really did was we helped him finish learning how to crawl that was a developmental stage that he had not achieved because of his cerebral palsy. So he just could not replicate the, the movement experiences that most other babies do to get the hang of it. He never got the hang of it and it percolated all the way up through bike riding. And once he figured it out, he figured it out very, very quickly. And then there's all the way over on the other hand where people just – they almost treat it like massage. They come in. It feels really good. They're really relaxed. Thank you very much. I'm out of pain. And then they come in with the exact same thing in spite of everything, right? Because, and you'd like to think that the changes you make on the table or in the, in the 
the classroom, you know, in the group class, you'd like to think, oh, they should last. But the fact is you'd go back to your life. And we live most of our lives in a habitual space. Right? That's why we can listen to the radio while we drive. We drive out of habit. We do a lot. We eat out of habit. And, you know, we rush around, especially in this culture. So it, it typically, you know, what I ask people to do is I ask people to come in anywhere between 7 and 14 times. And uh, that they usually – that's usually they get what they came for. Um, if I'm working with a, a child with special needs who has a congenital um, disability, especially a neurological disability, this is going to be an ongoing process. And uh, it's open-ended. Again, it's like, well, you know, do you catch the kid up to where he's supposed to be in the developmental sequence? Maybe. Or do you just get a person functional? I have a training with special needs children called JKA and, and the model there is, you know, progressive um, – what do we call it? Progressive abilities formation. So it doesn't even go on the standard Piaget scale or the standard gravitational skills scale. You know, people, people go forwards. They go backwards. You're a little kid. You don't – you know, you don't bounce back. You can only bounce forwards. It's you're, you're figuring out brand new things for the first time. Somebody with a stroke really depends not only on neurological repair, but, uh, you know, how, how fast can neuroplasticity take place? In some cases, hugely quickly. Um, the easiest, I would say, the most predictable, which you can really just say, yeah, seven to ten sessions are, are orthopedic things. So I met a, a runner in my neighborhood the other day. She's out with an ankle brace. She's not a runner right now. First she broke her tibia, then she broke her fibula, all stress fractures. She's a triathlete. And I said, so – What's going on? She says, well, I, I just – as I get older, I keep getting re-injured. And it's like, well, maybe it's not age. Maybe it's just the, the pounding that you were giving yourself all along. As you get older, you're less resilient in terms of healing. Maybe you should find a way to do all your, your fun sports and not hurt yourself. And that, yeah, you can really restructure a person's gait, um, walking, running, whatever. You, yeah, you can do that in just a few weeks. So I'm pretty confident with that. And, and if somebody comes in with a, with a rehab, like a, a post-operative rehab, my idea of a rehab – and, and it, Feldenkrais doesn't even use the word, right? It's just – because it's always, well, you, you're limited. There's something you want to do but you can't do and we want to get you back there. Well, why can't you do it? Well, you have back pain. Well, you have a cast. Well, you have a pin. It's diagnosis independent. What can you do to function optimally at this time and do, and keep that optimization going forward? And so the idea of rehab is not one of getting a joint well or getting a bone well. It's, it's getting a person back to their full life so that they're enjoying themselves and hopefully not doing whatever it was they did to get hurt in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear what a short time frame for – some of you know the conditions you described to rebuild through neuroplasticity or rebuild pathways in the brain that can change a gait. I mean, we think of these things, I mean, to some degree mechanical, we think of them as being from a whole host of reasons, and to retrain in that short amount of time is really 
actually pleasantly surprising. It is, and it shouldn't be. And I'll tell you why. Um, so we've both been through anatomy labs, God only knows. Right. <laughs> if you were to take a human skeleton and you just picked it up by the head and you hung it, you would see that the bones align in gravity in a certain way. And that's not necessarily what people would think of as good posture. I don't know how many mothers look at their kids and say, sit up straight or stand up straight. There's not a straight bone in the body. The spine is curvy for a reason. If you have a flat spine, you, you have a pathological spine. You need those curves, right? So it's not a question of straightness. It's a question of being well aligned in gravity. And what do I mean by well-aligned in gravity? Well, to the extent that your bones are doing most of the work. So that if, you, if I were to push on your head or push on your shoulders, it would just go straight down through into the ground through your feet and then the ground would push back up and you would feel supported and you would not need muscular effort to hold you. You'd need a little bit of muscular effort to hold balance. You always do. Um, every time you reach out to shake hands, you have to make a balance adjustment because you throw off your center of gravity. That's, that's the tiny stuff. But the ability to sense where is it that I, as an individual, where is my axis? What is the, what is the place that I turn around? Where is my place of balance? that is actually relatively easy to get a person to feel. So it's not a question of, oh, you have a head, shoulder, you know, head forward kyphotic posture. I don't know how many times I've written that in a chart. It's more a question of, okay, well, if I take you forwards here, what does that feel like? And if I take you backwards here, what does that feel like? And if I take you over here and I take you over here, is there some place in the middle that's easier than any of those? Can you find it? And then, of course, there, there are, I mean, there are lessons which will really get you to find that. Well, what are you finding? Um, you are finding a place of effortlessness. Uh, you, you can have a fully loaded Humvee and a, a little two-year-old can lift it with one finger. And how do you do that? Well, you put the identical Humvee at the other end of a balance beam. And now both of these Humvees, these multi-ton vehicles, are effectively weightless. And if you just look at it, you poke it, you'll lift it because it doesn't weigh anything. And if you can find your center for your structure, for your organs, which are by no means symmetrical inside of your gut – you can actually become lighter on your feet. And once you feel that sense of lightness, all that tells you is you're using your bones well and your muscles can relax. So I don't have to go in there as a massage therapist and give you a squeeze. If, if you don't have to yank on your head to keep it from falling forwards, you'll stop, probably. <laughs> it's hard work. Why would most people just do what's necessary? The, the ultimate thing is you don't want to fall. So, but there's balance, and then there's balancing around the point of easy balance, and you can find that. Yeah. For people who may be interested in trying Feldenkrais, you know, certainly you are in the Atlanta area, um, but across the country mm -hmm. or even globally – um, you know, just from the brief New York Times article on Feldenkrais, it sounded like there is it a thousand practitioners here, or how do people find practitioners for Feldenkrais? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, for years, 
and I probably still the best way to find even me, right, mm-hmm. is Google, right? And, and it's a funny thing because Google is regional. So, you know, if you type in Feldenkrais in Atlanta, you, you'll find a bunch of local practitioners. And then um, – but if you just type in Feldenkrais, you might come and, – and I would recommend it. You go to the website of the Feldenkrais Guild of North America and under there they have a tab that says find a practitioner. The problem is that not every practitioner is a Feldenkrais Guild member. Um, they are a certifying body, right? So there, is, there really is a, a credential and it's trademarked. And so, so I am a guild certified Feldenkrais practitioner. But there are a lot of people who don't want to pay the dues or for whatever their reason or they don't seek certification. Or for many years I thought, well, I don't need certification. I'm a PT. I have a license to work with people. And so I did not bother with with guild membership. I, I shouldn't confess this on the air, but but a lot of people don't. And um, so then really probably the best the best way you're going to do this is just through a local search. Hopefully they have a website. Um, and then the, I think the best introduction to Feldenkrais, unless you really have an injury or a specific performance concern, really the classes are the way to go. And um, they're just a great introduction. And it's not the same, it's not the same thing as a hands-on, but it's a pretty cool thing to discover. And um, I, that's why I run classes online. Um, so my classroom reaches into any convenient time zone. <laughs> and, and I'm adding more classes. And, and really, it's limiting to be tied to a studio at a particular time. Right? So plenty of people go to studios, they go to yoga studios, they go to their Pilates studio. It's not a bad thing, but in fact, you can do it online really easily. And you know, if, if you do it right, like you use Zoom for this podcast, I use Zoom to do my classes. So it's a real class. I look at people and if they need supervision or correction, they get it. And that's a whole other way to go. Um, and so you can actually find a, a, an introduction like that. And then, you know, if you're really just you can't access anything else. There are some classes that you can just download off of YouTube or stream. Um, you can always find a way. But yeah, the try the Guild site. Try And actually, I would just try, uh, if you Google or Bing or whatever your favorite um, search engine is, try that first because I guarantee you your Feldenkrais teachers want to be found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems from the New York Times article on it that there are 7,000 teachers and practitioners working in 18 countries. There so are. certainly now with technology, mm-hmm. um, you can, as you said, do it online. Uh-huh. And um, and if you need the individual. That um, you can't do online. Exactly. <laughs> then maybe looking for someone um, that is in their proximity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been very informative. Well, thank you for having me. I am always thrilled to get the word out about Feldenkrais. I, it's it's strange that it's been around as long as it has, and yet people still turn around and say, never heard of it. But um, hopefully more people will hear of it and, and come to enjoy it because – 
Feldenkrais was brought to this country. His first teaching was at Esalen, and he was brought in not as a fancy therapist. He was brought in as somebody who was bringing another tool for fulfilling human potential. And these are the people he worked with. It wasn't general students. It was a bunch of psychologists and doctors and people who were really concerned with living a full life. This is the, this is the basis of the Feldenkrais work. And so I'm – and that's the juice for me. It's nice when I get somebody out of pain, but it's really nice when they have that first bike ride of their life. Wow. And it's a thrill for me every time. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing all this information. Thank you for having me. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.